Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. None of you are unfamiliar with what's going on right now over the last uh, couple of days, and this is just another one of those wonderful surprises that 2020 keeps bringing us. But we know that this nation is at a crisis point. We stand on the precipice. We really do. There are a lot of people who aren't following things closely. We can't do that anymore, folks. We can't do things as normal because things are not normal. And they've come to a real a real head. And people think, well, what can I do? Well, the first thing we can do is we can pray because our focus has to be on the Lord. And we really do need to pray. There are forces of evil at work in this nation that, that we cannot even begin to fathom that are seeking to destroy this country and to destroy our government. And I thank God that we have a president who's willing to fight it because there have been many in his party over the last 20 or 30 years unwilling to take a stand and make make a fight. But we have a president who will do that, and we need to pray that the courts and the justices will see the evil and that, that, that it will be exposed. Before I pray and before we get started, I wanted to read a passage from Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17 focuses our attention on where it should be. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and who makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. That describes a lot of people in this nation now who have turned to paganism. As I pointed out in our study on how should we then vote, a recent survey of worldview came to the conclusion that only 6% of Americans understand and think in terms of a biblical worldview. 6%. That is incredibly low. That is quite different. I, I, uh, when Barna did his survey about 12 or 14 years ago, he, he, had, he identified about 12 or 14% evangelicals on a pretty strict nine-point guideline that would indicate that they believed in the nine tenets of, the, of a biblical uh, worldview. And that's, that's been cut in half in 12 years. And that's because we're not fulfilling our responsibilities in churches or in families to teach our children the Word of God. 
But the passage goes on to give us hope. It says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. And no matter what the circumstances may be, our hope is in the Lord. We know that he's in control. We know that whatever happens, uh, we have a lot of believers who serve in Washington, a lot who have their eyes open, a lot who are trying to do the best, and we can pray for them, even if we don't know who they are. We need to pray for them, and we need to continue to pray that God would expose the evil in the land. He is our only hope. And the one who trusts in the Lord shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. It's very interesting that the next verse says, for the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? So let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord and that we have... Uh, confess sin if necessary, admitted to the Lord uh, sin in our life so that we can be restored to that partnership with God in our spiritual growth. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful that we have you as our rock. You are our source of stability. You are our uh, hope. You give us a confident expectation that though we know we live in in the devil's world, we know that there are things that are happening around us uh, that we cannot imagine, and we would shrink back in horror if we knew them. But we know you know them, and you're in control, and you have permitted these things to happen for your purposes. And so we need to be focused on how we can serve you and serve one another in the midst of whatever chaos and whatever changes may come our way. Father, our hope is in you. And Father, as a congregation, we focus upon you and we trust in you. And we look to opportunities to be able to be a light in the midst of this Uh, corrupt and perverse generation. And Father, we pray that you would strengthen us and those who have kids that they are rearing and training. We pray that you would strengthen them in their uh, commitments, in their parental roles, training and teaching their children how to think about what's going on in life and going to your word, fulfilling uh, biblical mandates to train up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And Father, we pray for us tonight that as we look at your word, that as always we will be strengthened, encouraged, enlightened, and that God the Holy Spirit will use it to strengthen our souls. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to 2 Peter. Last week I reviewed the first chapter, and we looked at uh, just what we had covered because we had not been in Second Peter since uh, the m- middle of March. Now tonight, as we get ready to go into the next two chapters, I want to take an opportunity to do a flyover and to see what we're going to be looking at over the coming months as we study this. 
I like to do these flyovers for a couple of reasons. First of all, to help you get a handle on the overall context of what Peter is saying in terms of, of understanding this, this, this big picture of his message. Because so often when we start getting into the details and going verse by verse, we drill down into uh, some minutia at times and various details and go off looking at uh, other aspects of certain doctrines that are taught, certain topics. And so it's important to have that overview and constantly come back to that and to under, understand the the subject matter, how it relates, so we don't lose the... Uh, the, the 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 forest uh, or the leaves for the or excuse me the forest for the the trees. Second reason is that when people who aren't here all the time, most of you are here all the time. You listen, or you listen if you can't be here. And so when when you have people who just come to the website, and we have thousands of people who come to the website, and they may be coming for a lot of different reasons. Some may be Sunday school teachers or Bible class teachers or Bible studies, or they just want to know something about a passage or a book, and so they just come in, and and, and especially if they are someone who's teaching at uh, a church or some are in Africa, some are in India, Australia, and they just need to do more of overviews for people to help them just understand the basic message of Scripture, then I try to do these, and where they're organized for the most part on the on the internet, where overview type lessons are labeled as as A. So it'd be lesson tonight would be, uh, I think it's lesson thirty four, and it would be an A lesson. It's an overview lesson, and if you look at some of the long books like Genesis or Revelation. There may be about 18 or 20 overview lessons. You can go through the whole book, just listen to those overviews, and you'll get a great handle on what that book is all about. And if you're teaching a Sunday school class, that really helps you to do that and not have to go through, you know, 80 lessons for a this or for that. And so that's one reason I do this, is to help uh, out camp counselors or Bible study leaders just to be able to go through a book like that. And then also, it just creates a sense of anticipation for the wonderful things that we're going to learn as we go through chapter 2 and chapter 3. And there are just some, some really, really neat things uh, that are going on here. And so we looked at the overall uh, message of the first chapter last time, that God's will is for us to grow to spiritual maturity. And what we see here is Peter is following a very solid uh, pattern and order of of speaking in the first chapter, you need to grow to spiritual maturity. You need to be grounded in the word because when you get to chapter two, there's the warning in, in uh, chapter two, verse one, that, that false teachers will come. We'll talk about that uh, a lot more, but it's, it's a future tense that these false teachers are going to come. And in order to be protected against the false teachers, that you need to be grounded in the Word of God. You need to be grounded in the truth, for it's only the truth that's going to uh, sanctify us. It's only the truth that will set us free from the slavery to sin. And so uh, Peter does that well. And then when he gets into the third chapter, he's going to deal with some specifics in terms of the of, of the false teaching. And he ends everything with such a great verse that that we are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
it's important to know the characteristics of the false teachings that are around there, around because they're so subtle, and most people just don't have a clue, and if people use the right vocabulary, they just think they're fine and wonderful, and they're teaching the Bible. But, but that's, not always, uh, that's not always true. So we're going to look at the basic structure here. Uh, the first part was God's will is for us to grow to spiritual maturity, 21 verses in the first chapter. Second chapter, God warns us about false teachers so that we can be prepared in verses 1 through 22. So that brings us up to 43 verses in the first two chapters. And then in the third section, which is the third chapter, God refutes specific false teaching in light of the future return of Christ. And that takes us down through uh, 18 verses. So we have uh, something like 61 verses in this, this epistle. But it touches on a lot of different things. And it refers to some of the most significant events in the Old Testament. Now remember that, as we'll see when we get to chapter 3, verse 1, that Peter is writing to the same people to whom he wrote the first epistle. And these were Jewish background believers who were living in the diaspora. And so as Jewish background believers, they had a frame of reference for the Old Testament. And when uh, Peter references these different events and these different people, he's talking to an audience that's familiar with them. But today we have a culture that is so biblically illiterate both in and, out, in and outside of the church that we need to take time for all of us to really understand uh, who these people are, what these events were, and why they are significant. And so that's one of the reasons I stopped to take the time uh, to go through these uh, various situations and understanding these patterns in Scripture going back and all of these things with one exception, they all come out of Genesis. And the one exception is Balaam, who is mentioned in Numbers, and that is uh, very important for the, uh, for the history of, of Israel. So when we get into the second chapter, what we'll see is that God warns us about false teachers. And there's basically four parts to the way I have outlined it. The first part is just the first half of the first verse, that there is a certainty of false teachers, that they're coming. And if you're not aware of it, they're, they have multiplied like rabbits through the last 2,000 years. And there's just an enormous amount of, of, of false teaching and heresy that is out there in churches and we could spend a lot of time on some of those, but I'm not going to do that. I will mention them as we pass by, but I'm not going to, to drill down on a number of the things that are going on today. So we have the certainty of false teachers and their destructive heresies in the first part of verse 1. In the second part of verse 1 down to verse 3, which is really sort of the introduction to this section, uh, it talks about the destructiveness of deception, that deception destroys people's lives because it destroys their hope in the gospel. It destroys the truth of the gospel, the content of the gospel. Ultimately, it destroys their faith in the scriptures, faith in the Bible, that the Bible is accurate, inerrant, we can trust it, uh, that there is a tremendous amount of evidence to support 
these, these beliefs and these doctrines internally as well as externally. And so when this deception leads to the destruction not only of, of those who follow their message, but also it will destroy those who are the false teachers. And then the next section, verses 4 down through 10a, give us four references to Genesis events to illustrate the certainty of their judgment. Now, one of the things I'll point out, especially when we get into the study itself uh, of the chapter, is chapter 2 and 3 have tremendous parallels to Jude. Jude is only one chapter, but Jude is really written a little bit later. Peter writes to say false teachers will be here, and Jude writes false teachers are here. It's a little more complicated than that because what Peter does, as we'll see in our study, is that he talks about the fact that false teachers will come. But later he talks as if they're already present. And if you read the literature and the commentators, they go back and forth over over whether they're already here or whether they're coming. And I think the answer is pretty simple, that in some areas they're already there. But in the area where Peter is addressing them, they're not there yet. They will come. And Jude seems to be writing to the same area, the same group of people a little bit later, and by this time they, they have arrived. So they, uh, there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of parallel. When you read them together, they uh, uh, enhance and expand uh, what each one says. And then in the last part, we see the self-destruction that comes upon uh, the false teachers because of their own arrogance. And that's in the second part of verse 10 down through down through 22. So we'll look, first of all, we'll just kind of work our way through this and talk about it. And in the first verse, there's the certainty of false teachers and destructive heresies. And one of the things I do want to point out, though, as we go through this is a lot of you have gone through the Bible study method series. And one of the first things you do in reading the Bible and studying the Bible, you should have a pen when you do your daily Bible reading. You should be doing things where you're marking up the text uh, just to point out things to yourself. But if you look at the first verse, it starts off, but there were also. So what is the but? That's a, that's a contrast. And it contrasts with, with what we've read and studied in the last part of of chapter 1 and verses 19 to 21. So 19 to 21 is talking about those prophets who were the true prophets of God who who wrote the scriptures and wrote the truth and they were guided by the Holy Spirit. And now he says, but in contrast to those good prophets, there were also false prophets among the people. Well, contextually, the people has to refer to Israel. And so we're talking about the Old Testament period when there were prophets but there's a lot said in the Old Testament about false prophets. And he then goes on to say, he then goes on to say, even as there will be false teachers among you. Notice he doesn't say there will be false prophets among you. As we've studied a little bit and touched on a little bit in Ephesians, in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 20, uh, Paul states it this way, the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church. And there he's talking about New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets as indicated by the verse we looked at, I think it was in verse 5 of chapter 3, but in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, it talks about the gifts that 
are given by Christ to the church, and they are first apostles and then prophets and then evangelists and then pastor teachers in that order. So whenever he talks about apostles and prophets in relation to the church, he's, he puts them in the order where apostle is first, a prophet is second. He's talking about New Testament prophets. But those were temporary gifts, and they are already passing off the scene by the time Peter is writing this. And so he doesn't talk about false prophets will arise. He's talking about false teachers will arise because that's what we have in the New Testament is, is false teachers in the in the in the church age. So the first part of this verse is what I'm looking at in terms of just the outline, the certainty of false teachers. And he says, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be future tense, false teachers among you. And a comparison is looking at the fourth verse of Jude. So you don't write it Jude 1, 4, because there's no 2 or 3, you just list the verses there. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, Jude writes, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see two of the major elements that Peter brings out is that there is a a licentiousness, a sexual licentiousness and lewdness to uh, what the false teachers are teaching, and it is combined with a denial of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is exactly what the second part of the verse uh, will say, is that they deny the Lord who, who, who bought them. So we talked about these three key f- words that are there that you should highlight, look for key words, look for key verbs, but... And now he's talking about these false, first he references just as there were false prophets among the people in Israel, even so there'll be false teachers among you. So now the next couple of verses talk about the destructiveness of this deception. And he repeats this word several times. He says, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves with destruction. So this false teaching is destructive because rather than bringing life, it will bring slavery to the sin nature, slavery to lust, and it will bring destruction into a person's life. And they are called destructive heresies. And here, uh, contextually, even though the way the word is used at the time, it seems to indicate more what we would call sects or or just different groups. Contextually, it's much more than that. It is those who are teaching uh, false false concepts about the person and the work of Christ. They deny the Lord who bought them. So this is one of the great verses in the scripture that deals with unlimited atonement. Now, there's a lot of debate that goes on as to whether the people, the false teachers that Peter's talking about are are Christians or whether they are non-Christians. And I think that they're both. Some of them are Christians that have been deceived, and some of them are non-Christians who are influenced by uh, by demonic thinking, all false teaching 
anything false. As we've studied many times, human viewpoint is always the thinking of Satan, and it is always ultimately uh, demon, demon influence. So uh, th- these, these destructive heresies include denying the Lord, not denying that he bought them, but first of all, denying the Lord. So they're denying that he is the Savior because the, the, the Lord is then defined by this uh, relative clause that he's the one who bought them. So they're denying that there's been a payment for their sin. They're, the, and, and from that point on, it just gets worse. And they bring on themselves swift destruction. So there's a destruction in the lives of those who follow them, and then they uh, destroy their own lives. And then when we get into the second verse, Many will follow their destructive ways. Now, that's how the King James translates it, but there is a different word that's there in the, uh, in the Greek, and it means sensual as opposed to destructive. It's not the same word. In fact, the word that is translated as destructive through here is the word that is, it's apaleia as the noun. It's related to the Greek word apolumi, which is the one that's translated perished, in John three six sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. Okay? But that word does not always mean perishing in the sense of eternal condemnation. It's also applied in various places for a temporal uh, condemnation or temporal destruction. So, but that's the focus here is that, that following in false teaching is the opposite of following the truth. The truth sanctifies in John 17, uh, 17, the truth sets us free, but the lies destroy us. And so he goes on in verse 3 by covetousness. So he's indicating that this is their motivation. They're, they're, they're in it for themselves. And we know from Colossians 3, 5 that, that, covetousness is idolatry and so they are worshiping money they're worshiping they think that having money and the things that money could buy are going to give them happiness and stability and you know i can't help when i read this verse from thinking of the whole health and wealth gospel the prosperity gospel that came along in um, in the early part of the 19th century i mean 20th century that actually has its roots in the same pagan metaphysical philosophy that gave birth to uh, theosophy and the New Age movement, gave birth to uh, Christian science, which is neither Christian nor science, uh, gave birth to a number of other things, and then got picked up and brought into the uh, Pentecostal charismatic movement. And now that dominates the charismatic Pentecostal movement, as it were. So uh, that is an example of how false teaching has has been so destructive in of people's uh, spiritual lives. And th- this teaching of the idea, of name it and claim it, that if you will cast your your bread upon the water, God will return it to you tenfold. Uh, back in the '80s, I knew a pastor who had a man come to him who had given almost everything he had in the bank because he believed that God would restore it tenfold because that's what he taught, and he lost everything. He was just a pauper. He'd given everything away, just and it destroyed his life. And there are so many, many others who have, who have done that. 
So they will exploit with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Even though we don't see it, God takes care of it. And that's God. Peter will return to that theme when we get into the third chapter, that God is fully aware and God will hold everyone to account for those things. So that takes us through the first three verses, the introduction to the chapter, and then there's the certainty of their judgment. And you may not be able to read every word here, but I wanted to put at least six or seven verses up there so you could see how you could go go about highlighting the the you know key words. These are connective words. I had a uh, professor at Dallas Seminary, well-known uh, Greek scholar by the name of S. Lewis Johnson, and he used to always say, men, the most important words for you to study are the connectives because that links your phrases and clauses and tells you the development of the thought of the writer. And many people just skim over these things, the conjunctions, uh, the explanatory words like for, the words like he, and this is all one sentence in, in the Greek actually goes a little longer. But he says, for if God, and you have a conditional clause there, and that's the first part. In, in conditional clauses, you have a statement like, like in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, that's called the protestant. That's the condition. And then the result is given after that. If we confess our sins, then it's not stated, uh, it's not translated, but then God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you have an if clause and a then clause. Well, look at this. You have the if in verse 4, and you don't get to the then until verse 9. This is a long statement. And so he starts off, and he uses, as we've studied, there are uh, four different ways in which if clauses are expressed in the Greek, three primarily all through the New Testament. And this is in the sense that if and this happened. So it's if and this happened, and since it did then. And then you have a very positive statement about God's deliverance in verses uh, 9 and 10. And so he goes through four references to the Old Testament. God who spared, if God did not spare the angels who sinned. So there's judgment on the angels who sinned. There's judgment on the ancient world in verse 5. There's judgment on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 6. But then there's deliverance of righteous lot. So, see, that's the point that he's making. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly. And it starts off with the angels who sinned. Now, that gets us into a very important doctrine right now. And that is related to the angelic conflict. Now, we've talked through the angelic conflict, and I've got a book many of you have read on spiritual warfare but we're going to ratchet this up just a little bit more. It's fascinating to study how frequently in the Bible there are these references to what the demons are doing, what the angels are doing, and especially when you get into the book of Revelation. So it's interesting that on Thursday night, starting probably not next week but the week after, on Thursday night and on Sunday morning in Ephesians 3.10. And then we'll be wrapping up Psalm 30 next Tuesday night. So the next week we're going to start a new psalm. 
And there's a psalm that is critical to understanding what's going on with the angelic conflict. And we're going to study that psalm. So what's going to happen is uh, in a couple of weeks, as I see where we are and how it's going on, we're going to start and I'm going to teach through about 8 to 10 hours on the angelic conflict, and we're going to go from Tuesday night to Thursday night to Sunday to Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday to Tuesday, Thursday, and we might finish somewhere around the end of the month. But that those those whatever turns out to be 6 to 10 lessons are going to be relevant to all three topics or books that we're studying on Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. So we're going to kill three birds with one stone, and we're just going to put that in there. And Bryce and I talked last night about some way to make sure that if somebody's listening to Ephesians, then when they get to, I think we're on about Ephesians 85, that when they get to 86, that will be the same lesson that I teach as the first lesson when we get into what will probably be what is this? This is 34, so it'll probably be 36 in Peter, and I don't know how we're going to handle it in on Tuesday night, but each of those series, people will hear, get to this point, and everybody goes through the same thing, and and there's going to be some stuff, some new stuff we're going to bring out, and nothing new. It's the way we need to tie it together that's going to give us a, a, a couple of, oh, wow, moments, Okay. So we're going to see see something, and I think in the turmoil we're seeing right now, we see that there is definitely demonic involvement. Now, our job is not to go identify the de- demonic involvement. We're not stupid charismatics, and we're not going to go out and try to punch the devil and knock him out. And, and No one in the Bible ever goes around trying to figure out what the demons are doing behind the scenes, but we know that. That's Ephesians 10 that we are in a warfare. And that is why Paul concludes that by talking about prayer. We're in an invisible war, and at the end of of his section on Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, he closed by, in all things, pray. And that's what we need to be doing right now. The number one thing we need to be doing is praying. Praying for our country, praying for the exposure of those who are involved in evil, who are seeking to corrupt and destroy the United States, praying for our leaders. We need to be praying. I don't think that's the only thing we should be doing, but that's the primary thing we're, we're supposed to be doing. So anyway, Peter gives these examples. Three are negatives of judgment, and then the fourth is the deliverance of righteous lot. He's a believer. This, reading through commentaries on this, everybody's stunned. Why does he call him righteous lot? The guy appears to be a loser. They all forget Genesis fifteen six, that Abram believed God and God accounted it to him as righteousness. That's why Lot is called righteous. It's not because he's living righteously. It's because he's a believer. And that's why God is bringing him and his family out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Peter makes this point. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations, and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. That's a great verse to pay attention to because when you look around you and you think that that many of these people are getting away with what they're doing and they're wicked and they're evil and they've done horrible things and they're 
Um, everything from child molesters to whomever you think they're getting away with it. Right now we know God knows how to deliver the godly and how to reserve the unjust for punishment. And he knows the best way to do that. So we have these four events from the Old Testament. We're going to need to take some time to look at each one of those. And then we look at the idea of how God is going, how God delivers and how God reserves the unjust for punishment. And then we come to 2.10 at the end of this section, and especially those who walk according to the flesh. We're going to pay attention to how Peter talks about those who walk according to lust and they, how that is destructive. Because we live in a time when it's real easy for us to give in to lust. And I'm not just talking about sexual lust. That's the first thing that comes to people's mind. But there's a lust for power. There's a lust for pleasure. There's a lust for drugs. There's a lust for money. There's all kinds of different lusts that, that drive our sin nature, desires uh, for, for certain things, a lust for power and control. And when we combine that with mental attitude sins such as anger and uh, retribution and vengeance, things like that, and there's a lot of people who are mad about what happens on Tuesday. They're mad about what's happening politically in this country. And they let that sin dominate their thinking. And as believers, we can't do that. Uh, we can't. I mean, every one of us has, has de- dealt with those emotions yesterday and still today we look at this and we're just madder than a wet hen but we have to bring that under the control of the word of god and recognize that that actions motivated by anger are not godly that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing something but it means that our motivation needs to be not be the sin nature so this is what's happening in, with these false teachers is they're giving justification and rationales for letting the sin nature go and doing whatever, uh, whatever they want to. And so we go to the next point, which is the self-destruction that comes to their arrogance. And that's described in verse 10. They're presumptuous, self-willed. That's, that's, they're operating on the arrogant skills. They are uh, given into uh, self-indulgence. They're, they are given to self, um, self-justification, and they're in, uh, self, uh, they're, they're in a total case where they are living in a world of delusion, because they are self-deluded, and that leads to self-deification, as we've seen in our study of those, those arrogant skills. And these are so arrogant that they are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Jude puts it a little differently, but in both cases you have an example of those who seek to, to challenge and rebuke demonic powers. And I always think of what happens in deliverance ministries in the Pentecostal church because that's what they do. And when I was doing a lot of research on spiritual warfare and I went to several uh, spiritual warfare conferences in charismatic churches and the arrogance of their thinking that they can, you know, kick Satan out of here or beat him up and the, the histrionics and dramatics that they get involved in, I, you just can't help but think of these passages. 
And the example that P- Peter gives, it's important to always see he goes back to the Bible. Every time he's saying something, he goes back to substantiate it from the Scripture. He says, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord in heaven. Now, that's an important verse for understanding things that are going on in the angelic conflict. And the angels in heaven are not, you know, taking charge over Satan or demons in the name of Jesus or anything else. They are not in operating on that kind of, of arrogance. And then we get down to verse, verse 12 and following, and it just goes on in the vein of describing what these false teachers are like. They've given themselves over to their sin nature. They're compared to just brute beasts who just do whatever they want whenever they want it. And uh, they need to be caught and destroyed, Peter says. They speak evil of things they don't understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. Now, some people take that to mean eternal condemnation. But I I don't think, think that. I think as we get into this section, we have to understand that believers, those who have trusted at one time in Christ and then become led astray and they've become useful idiots for Satan in the angelic conflict, uh, they will self-destruct. Verse 13, they receive the wages. A wage is something you get for something you have done, something you've performed. So they, they receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count pleasure to carouse in the daytime. Now, believers don't carouse in the daytime, they're not supposed to. That's a work of the flesh, Galatians chapter 5. It's not a work of the, of the Holy Spirit. So they are living totally on the basis of their, their sin nature and just having uh, great uh, parties and orgies and everything else. And verse 14 describes them as having eyes full of adultery, which is a very picturesque way of saying that, that every time they look at somebody either maybe of the opposite sex or the same sex, all they can think about is sex. And that's their whole focal point. And so this, this dominates their, their thinking. And we have these awful examples. And I have watched a couple of videos that are designed to, to expose what's going on in the entertainment business and in power politics. And it goes into things that were going on with... Uh, uh, Jeffrey Epstein and all of that stuff with his Pleasure Island. And I'm telling you, you just, you just want to go take a shower for a couple of hours. And th- this is the elite of our time. These are people who have unbelievable amounts of money and all they do is spend it on their sin nature. And there's evidence brought out in these films that this goes to secret... Uh, secret rites where they even sacrifice children. It is Baalism come into the 21st century. And it's going on there. And they talk about these these, uh, powerful elites in our culture. Uh, We are ripe for judgment from God with what is going on in our nation. And that's what Peter is describing. See, it's nothing new. It may be new to us because we were reared in a wonderful time in this nation. 
But the forces of evil have taken over, and now we need to be prepared as believers, and the only thing that can fortify us is the Word of God. But we know they'll receive the wages of unrighteousness. They are spots and blemishes. I love that phrase here, just the opposite of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who is without spot or blemish. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. And then the last phrase, they have a heart trained in covetous practices. And the word there for trained is the Greek word gymnazo, where we get our, our word gymnasium. And literally it has the idea of exercising naked, exercising unclothed, because that's how they did it in the, in the ancient world. I read the history of the Olympics and when they... Uh, started to revive the modern Olympics from the ancient Olympics. Classical scholars, and I believe it was Princeton and Harvard, Yale, were studying, and they looked at how how they did all of the uh, Olympic Games in the ancient world, and they wanted to duplicate that. So they had their first modern Olympic. And uh, the team, and they were they, these guys weren't athletes; they were classic scholars. And they came, and the team from, I think it was Princeton, it was one of them, the team from Princeton, I think, came out, and, you know, everybody's in the stands and everything, and they're just butt naked because they were doing it the way the ancient Greeks did. And then, of course, it, it was embarrassing, and everybody made them go back and put some clothes on. And, but the other team showed up with, with some kind of uniform on. But that, that's the idea, and the idea is to strip off everything that's a distraction that may hinder you in running well or performing your task well. And that's the the idea there, and it really comes to mean discipline, self-discipline, discipline to uh, achieve the, the task. So the heart that is disciplined in covetous practices, where parents are permissive and allow their children to fulfill their every lust and desire, it, it brings them under judgment. Now we get into the next little section. We have an illustration from Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness and how he led the Israelites into uh, lust where he had them, uh, had a huge orgy basically to worship Baal and all of the temple prostitutes and invited all of the Jewish men to come and they all succumbed to the seduction and it led to a, a great act of judgment by God where all of those who yielded were, had, to be, had to be killed. What, and uh, references uh, Balaam's donkey that spoke to him to get his attention. We'll talk about all those things. Verse 17 is a great sum, summary. These, that is, these false teachers are wells without water. They promise a lot, but there's nothing to provide. They are clouds carried by a tempest, but there's no rain. Uh, they are reserved the blackness of darkness forever. That is judgment upon these false teachers. So there I think it appears to be speaking of those who are unbelievers. But then in the next uh, section, uh, we deal with, I think, believers. For when they speak great swelling words of, igno- igno- of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. 
For by whom a person is overcome by him, he is also brought into, uh, into bondage. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is a clear indication they are believers. But then they get entangled in their sin nature and those lusts again, and the latter end is worse for them than the beginning because they're going to go through divine, divine discipline now. For it, verse 21, for it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. And then we have this proverb from Proverbs 26:11 applied. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit. And this is describing a believer who goes back to living like he did when he was an unbeliever. And I've got a funny story I'll tell you when you get there. A little history in our doctrinal church background. Okay, so that takes us to chapter 3. Chapter 3 starts off, Beloved, he's writing to believers. Beloved, they are beloved of God. He says, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. So this is his second reminder. The first epistle is his first reminder. And he's going to, the first two verses set it up, and then he goes into specifics about the false teachers and the second coming. So we look at this second reminder, and it's interesting that he uses, uh, forms the same word twice. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle. I stir you up by pure minds by way of reminder. What does he mean by reminder? Constantly, Peter is going over things again and again and again. It's repetition. We constantly need to be reminded of the doctrines of Scripture, of God's love for us, of our need to not yield to our sin nature, that no matter what happens in the world around us, we need to focus more than ever on our spiritual life and our spiritual growth that it's not an either or, it's a both and. We have to focus on our spiritual life and spiritual growth. And then as citizens of this country, perhaps we need to be involved in other ways that we can. But we need to do both. It's not one or the other. And some people set it up as a juxtaposition, but we have to do it in a way that honors God, that displays the fruit of the Spirit. Second Peter 3, 2, he says, that you may be mindful of the words. Literally what he means, that you may be reminded of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. That's Old Testament prophets. Notice the order, prophets, then apostles. The holy prophets, the Old Testament, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So he goes back to Old Testament and then New Testament. And then in the second part, he refutes the false teacher's denial of a literal second coming. And we have the same problem today even more so because when you are in school and you learn history, what you learn today is that everything just goes along and it's based on evolution and it's just going to continue and we could actually destroy the human race or we could destroy the planet, we could destroy the universe. And so we have to do what we can to save it, but... Um, their whole focus is on the fact that there's no end game. There's no resolution by God. Jesus is not coming back. There's no good and evil. Everything is just what it is. It's a pure naturalistic 
naturalism uh, wor- worldview. And so Peter has this great statement here. He says, know this first, and actually it should probably be translated first, you need to know this, or something like that, because the word first there indicates that this is of a priority. He says, scoffers will come in the last days. Now, people always wonder, well, when are the last days? Are we in the last days? And one of the things that we need to learn is that there are last days for Israel. That's the tribulation. And then there are uh, the last days of the church age. And the last days of the church age began after the ascension of Christ. (laughs) Because when you read through the scriptures you read a number of passages that talk about uh, these last days. For example, uh, in Hebrews chapter 1, you read in these last days, Hebrews 1, 2. In 2 Timothy, says um, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 begins, in these last days, or in the last days, and he's talking about the current time. And in 1 John 2, 18 and 19, John says it is the last hour. We are in the last days. We've been in the last days since 33 A.D., and it's going to continue to be the last days until Jesus returns because he can come at any moment. We just don't know when that's going to be. And then when the church is raptured out of here at some time after that, we don't know how much of an intervening period there will be before the start of the tribulation, but the tribulation are the last seven weeks in God's timetable for Israel, and that's Israel's last days. So when you read the scriptures, you talk about last days, you need to, are we talking about the last days of the church, in which case it's talking about all of the church age, or is it talking about the last days of Israel, then it's talking about, about the tribulation. So he says, scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. And see, this is happening all through the church age. They say, where's the promise of his coming? Jesus isn't coming back. Why are you looking forward to that? You just need to eat, drink, and be merry right now and forget about Jesus coming back. But there's something, another way to apply this. They say, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, you could apply this to deism, that once God wound the universe up, everything just continued the same, and it may be running down, but but it's all just continuing. But starting in the 1700s, uh, Charles Lyell, who's the father of historic geology, came up with a principle for interpreting geology called uniformitarianism. And that principle is why people believe in an old earth, is because they looked at at the evidence in the rocks, and they said, well, everything just erodes at a rather slow pace, and whatever the rate is today, that's the rate it's always been. And the problem with that is that it's not uniform. You can look at... um, For example, you can look at the erosion at river deltas. And if you do that, you get one date for the age of the earth. You can look at how much dust is settled on the surface of the moon, and you get a very young age for the earth. You can look at any number of different, 
what they call clocks to determine dates, and they're all different. Some have ages for the earth that only are a couple of thousand years old. Others have uh, several, maybe a million years, but they're all different. There, there's none, no two that are, that are consistent because they're all based on this principle of uniformitarianism. Now, some things have changed in geology in the last uh, 20 or 30 years due to some work by, by creationists. And so now uniformitarianism doesn't reign quite as supremely. They'll believe in punctuated uh, catastrophe. So you have this local catastrophe here and this local catastrophe there, but you don't have something on the order of Noah's flood that is at one single global catastrophe that explains the geology of the planet. But if you're a Bible believer, you have to do that. It's amazing as we read through First Second Peter, how Peter believes all of these things that happened in the Old Testament, including two references to Noah, that they're historical, they're actual, they're literal events. And that is how Christians should be. We must address those. And if you have an event that's like, um, like the flood of Noah that is a worldwide catastrophe that lasts over a year with all the land is covered by water. The force of the water is just phenomenal. Uh, That has to be factored into your understanding of whatever uh, you're thinking about Earth history. So the the bottom line is that these, these are scoffers. They're ridiculing the Bible, and they're saying... You, you can't count on Jesus coming back. Everything's just continuing the same, and it's not going to be any different in the future. And then verse 5 says, For this they willfully forget. They forget, they willfully ignore and deny it. That, and then he quotes from, deals with Genesis 1.1, For by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water And I think that's talking about the flood because he then says, by which the world that then existed, that is the antediluvian world, being flooded with water, uh, uh, perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition. So in the future, this present heavens and earth is going to be destroyed by fire. And then God will create the new heavens and new earth. And so then in verse 8, we have this statement, but beloved, do not forget this. One thing that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. See, a lot of people misread that and they say with God, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. That's not what it says. It's as, it's a comparison. And that is talking about the fact that with God who is eternal and infinite, there is no uh, time boundary. And so time is something that, it, that God created for uh, the universe. And so we live inside of this time box, but God is outside of that time box. And so uh, it's, it, he doesn't count days like, like we do. So God will, will, um, will act in ways that don't fit our timetable. That's the bottom line that he is, he is getting to. And we'll work our way through those. And in verse 9, God's not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. This is talking about his promise to bring judgment on the false teachers and on those who are wicked. He says, but he's long-suffering. Why? God's grace enters into this. God is not 
does not desire for any to perish, but that all should come to repentance that change their mind and trust in Christ. And so uh, God's grace sent a Savior who died for everybody, even the most evil or wicked. Their sins are paid for at the cross like everybody else. And God gives them time to respond to the gospel. And in many cases, over and over again, we, we hear where people heard the gospel, heard the gospel, and never, never responded positively. And so then he returns to the future. He says, the day of the Lord. Now, there's a lot of debate over exactly how this, the term the day of the Lord applies here. The phrase thief in the night applies to different uh, events in, in, in history and in eschatology. And so there are different views even among dispensationalists about how to interpret this. And so we'll have to work our way through that uh, when we get there. But it seems to end and relate to the destruction of the current heavens and earth. And when it says at the end, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And that would be at the end of the millennium. And then Peter's conclusion for us is, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? He drives home the point that the reason we study prophecy and eschatology is to recognize that there will be judgment and accountability, and so we need to live today in light of eternity. We need to live today in light of judgment. He says, for uh, what manner, in, in light of all these things that are going to happen, what manner of persons ought we to be? How should we live in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. So we'll look at all of these things and be reminded that according to his promise, we're looking for what? We're not looking for the judgment of the current heavens and, the, and earth. We're not looking for the judgment of unbelievers. That's not what we're looking forward to. We are looking forward to his promise where a new heavens and earth will be established where righteousness dwells, and to get away from all this corruption of sin and evil. So if we're looking forward to those things in verse 14, we are to be diligent to be found in him in peace without spot or blameless. Now, we'll all sin, but we're going to confess sin. We're going to be cleansed of sin so that we can be prepared for the coming of the Lord. And some people say, well, if you have sin in your life, or if you're committing a sin, then when Jesus comes, you're going to end up going through the tribulation. And that, uh, that is a failure to understand positional truth. And we'll deal with those things when, uh, when we get there. And then we come to the conclusion where Peter warns them, don't fall into error, but instead grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15, consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. As I love this section here. It says, as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of Scripture. 
Anybody who's tried to go through some sections of Paul know that it's not easy, and Peter thought the same thing. And so he concludes that we are to be beware of the evil, and we are to be steadfast and persevere and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that gives us an overview. A lot of different things are touched on by Peter, a lot of events in the Old Testament, a lot of things related to angels, related to demons, related to false teaching, a lot to cover. So all of it is designed to focus us on living our spiritual life today. So we will get started at the beginning of Chapter 2 next Thursday night. Father, we're thankful for this time together. We pray that you might uh, just work in this nation. There is such evil at work. Expose the evil. Strengthen our president. Strengthen those in the judiciary who understand truth. We know that there's incredible pressure on some, some even being blackmailed. There's just horrible things that are taking place that only that can explain some of the, some of the things that are happening. And, Father, just we pray that we can be steadfast in your word, not let these things uh, destroy our focus on you and our understanding of our mission. But above all, we pray that you might uh, expose this evil and that this nation may uh, recover from this precipice and pull back. And we pray this, that we might have the opportunity to be witnesses and to live our lives in peace and stability to serve you and glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.